great to be able to worship, great to be able to have fun, to celebrate, great to have this sense of, a little bit of sense of community through, through the comments and things. It's really special to be with you. We're aching for when we can see each other again in person. Um, we're in a series on, on James, and Paul's going to take us now into, into the book of James. So um, it's exciting, isn't it? And, uh, and as he comes and speaks to us, again, Lord, we, we're looking, we're seeking out this connection. We pray that um, the words of, of, of the Bible unpacked by Paul um, strike a chord for us and speak to us. Amen. Over to you, Brian. Thanks, Chris. Good morning, everyone. It's a nice new setup here. Just get myself in the right spot. Uh, I, I feel like this morning is one of those times I could do with the pulpit. You know, I could kind of lay some things out. So I'm trying to do it with browser tabs and uh, and, and <laughs> a kind of um, app, you know, tabs through back and forth for my notes. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll do what we can. So elected, elected. No, I think it's all on here anyway. <laughs> Next time, maybe. Um, so we're in uh, we're in the book of James, chapter three. And I'm, uh, the, the, the passage I've got is the second half of chapter 3. Um, I, I'm going to need to refer to the first half of chapter 3 because um, they kind of run together. Although maybe in your Bible you've got a, you, you have a, a, a subtitle, not a subtitle, a subheading. Um, halfway through chapter 3, it doesn't really break there. So I'll just kind of give a bit of a summary on some key points from the first half as they lead into the second uh, but I'll just start by reading the second half. So it's from verse 13. This is what we're focusing on. And then other aspects and some other scriptures I'm going to bring in, I'll quote them as, they, as we go. So uh, this is from the Passion Translation. If you consider yourself to be wise and one who understands the ways of God, advertise it with a beautiful, fruitful life guided by wisdom's gentleness. Never brag or boast about what you've done and you'll prove that you're truly wise. But if there is bitter jealousy or competition hiding in your heart, then don't deny it and try to compensate for it by boasting and being phony. For that has nothing to do with God's heavenly wisdom, but can be best described as the wisdom of this world, both selfish and devilish. So wherever jealousy and selfishness are uncovered, you will also find many troubles and every kind of meanness. But the wisdom from above is always pure, filled with peace, considerate, and teachable. It is filled with love and never displays or uh, displays any prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. And it always bears the beautiful harvest of righteousness. Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace. It's really those last those last couple of verses that is where we're going we're gonna to end up focusing on today. So I'm going to go on a little journey around the houses to bring us back to these last couple of verses. And, uh, and hopefully that will, um, that will land with, uh, with the bullseye. So uh, Holy Spirit help. Um, so Book of James. I say Holy Spirit help because Book of James is actually it's quite a, a tricky book to handle. Um, I'm not the first person to say Book of James is a tricky book to handle. In fact, the Book of James is so tricky... The great reformer, Martin Luther, wanted to throw it out of the Bible altogether. Um, and the reason he did is because it's actually, uh, it, it, it's, there's a temptation when reading the book of James that you fall back into uh, what I would call uh, a moralizing gospel or a moralizing message. And what a moralizing message is, it's one that it's basically like, here are, here are the 20 things you have to do. 
And if you do them, then you'll be a good person. And if you don't do them, then you'll be a bad person. So here we're going to come in and sort of tell you why you should be a good boy and why you shouldn't say bad things, why you shouldn't do bad things. And, you know, it's kind of very much this sort of carrot and stick mentality which sees the gospel and sees the scripture as predominantly being about teaching us a moral message. And this is kind of um, epitomizing this idea of, well, okay, it's, it's all about the commandments, you know, it's about the law, it's about ten commandments or however many commandments. And really what God is interested in doing is educating us about what commandments we should keep, what we need to do to be good, and what we don't need to do to not be bad. But that actually isn't Christianity. That's actually Judaism. And Jesus worked very hard as a Jew to save us from Judaism, um, which isn't to say that we don't have a lot of, of wisdom and a lot of things to learn uh, from you know, Jewish uh, teachers or philosophers or scholars um, of, of the scriptures um, or of anything else. But it's to say that Judaism as a religious system is really like every other religious system. Um, all religion in that sense is a human construct. is something which is basically moralizing, trying to tell you, be good, don't be bad. And there's this temptation when reading James that we read it through that kind of a, that kind of a lens. And it's, uh, it, it's difficult to see past that because James is very, it's very direct as a book. James as an author, as a writer, is very direct. And he, he doesn't really mince his words. So it kind of comes out quite punchy and quite quick. But if you, if you just take it at, uh, at face value, then you, you can fall into this, um, this trap of moralizing. And in many ways, James is kind of a transition book. We can read it in those terms. It's one of the older books in the New Testament, one of the earlier books that's written. And you can imagine you've got the, the early church, the, the first Christians are coming predominantly from a, a Jewish background, from, from having grown up practicing the Jewish religion, and now they're, they're struggling to understand what does it actually mean now that Christ has risen from the dead? What does this mean for us as this new community? And they're trying to integrate with other communities as well, particularly from a, from a Greek or Roman background or pagan background who've also come to faith in Christ. And this is, of course, the backdrop for, for a lot of the New Testament. But here with the book of James, it's also especially important. James is, is writing to, imagine, young, young believers who have come from this, uh, from a very heavily religiousified uh, background. And he's trying to help them. So there are certain assumptions that are there in James that we don't necessarily get. There's certain things that he takes for granted you'll understand as a reader because he had in mind the people who he was writing to that really we can't take for granted. We, ha we have to be a little bit uh, careful when we pick through those. So um, th this is sort of my, my, my introductory caveat to this whole passage. How, how should we respond to this passage and what does it impart to us? So on the first level, having said something about moralizing, I would also like to reiterate that there, there is good morality in the book of James. There's good teaching about how to live in a good way, what is good and what is bad. That's there as it is present throughout the whole of the scripture. So there is that, that dimension of things. We can read that and get good, wise instruction for how we could live better, how we could make better decisions in life. So absolutely that's there. However, I think that's pretty straightforward. And to be perfectly honest, you don't really need me to stand up and take 25 minutes to, to explain that. Um, it, it all falls under the, the, the heading of um, what a friend of mine said is that don't, don't, it's, 
it's the 10 steps how not to be a jerk kind of uh, reading of scripture. It's like there's some pretty good principles in here about how not to be a jerk. So if um, if you want to know how not to be a jerk, read the book of James and some other parts of the Bible. It's going to tell you and give you some good ideas how, how not to be a jerk. Um, there are also a lot of other things that will tell you how not to be a jerk, too. Um, all religions give pretty good pointers as to how not to be a jerk. Good philosophers, atheist philosophers, um, and writers and authors, Shakespeare, uh, Chaucer, all of these guys give <laughs> lots of good insight on how not to be a jerk. And I would encourage everyone to read them all as much as you're interested in and, and learn how, how not to be a jerk. So I'm not going to tell you today how not to be a jerk. I'm, I'm going to try and go to where I think the, the, the focus of, of the book of James and of the whole New Testament and of the whole Old Testament really is, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ and what it means that Christ has now risen, what it means that he has carried us with him and how that transforms everything about the very frame in which we view our lives and our existence and changes the nature of the question at the most fundamental level. That's where I, I want to get us to. So uh, I, I hope I'm able to do that without uh, without a lecture um, and just with my phone. So first of all, uh, a little recap of, the, of the, the first half of chapter three of the book of James. Um, James starts by, I'm going to summarize rather than read it, but he starts by talking about how not many people should presume to preach or teach. Because if they do, they'll get judged more severely. By the way, they don't get judged more severely by God. They get judged more severely by everyone else, which is um, evident if you see anyone who says anything in the public arena or on a, uh, on a camera like this. People have opinions about it, and they judge it. If you don't say anything, you don't get judged generally by people. If you keep to yourself and stay quiet in the corner, you, you kind of avoid the, uh, the, the, the judgment of um, this sort of real politic of uh, life and faith and, and, uh, and society and whatnot. So James is kind of saying, look, if you kind of would rather avoid having people uh, throw stones at you, then you're better off not saying anything. Just stay in the corner. Um, you're going to be held to a higher standard. And then he gets on to talk about this thing about the tongue. And he's, he, he uses a, a few uh, interesting phrases to describe the tongue. And this is important because it sets the foundation for where he goes in the second half of the chapter. So uh, he makes a point of saying that the, the tongue is a fire. It says it's a, 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 he, he describes it by saying a small flame instead of a huge forest uh, ablaze. And he also says it has a hellish flame and uh, it is full of a toxic poison. It's a fickle, unrestrained evil that spews out words full of toxic poisons there from uh, verse 8. He also uses this um, this image, and he talks about people putting uh, a bit or a bridle on a horse to control a horse. And he says, if you were able to control your tongue, then you would be able to control the entire course of your whole life. And he, he likens it to breaking and bridling a horse so that you can ride it. Then he goes down, actually it's right there in, in verse 8. He, he actually, having said that in the first few verses, that he said, look, if anyone can really can really bridle their tongue, they're going to be perfect. Then he gets down to verse 8 and he says, but the tongue is not able to be bridled. It cannot be tamed. And then he says, it's fickle, unrestrained evil that spews out words full of toxic poison. And then he, then he likens it to having a, a spring of water that in one minute is spewing out uh, salty water that you can't drink. And the next minute has got fresh water that you can drink. And this image is, of course, ridiculous because it's impossible. You don't have... Uh, you don't have a spring which produces salt water and a spring which produces fresh water. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist. 
because we know that water mixes together. <laughs> it, uh, um, you, the most you could imagine is maybe two different pipes coming out of the same spout, but that is an image that's being used here. So what, what we should be careful to see about this is that having begun with what appears to be a kind of moralizing statement about you should control your tongue and you should be a good person. Yes, you should. That's right. Good morals. James actually then goes on a little further to, to set up the, the impossibility of the situation. He's saying you've got a spring producing fresh water and salty water. doesn't work. He says you've got a tree that produces some berries that are good to eat and they're, they're healthy, good, you know, vitamin C, all full of your, your, uh, your, your free radical absolving, uh, absolving, absorbing, you know, um, antioxidants. That's the word I'm trying to say. Great berries, the kind of ones you want to put in your Sunday morning smoothie if you're, you're trying to kind of kickstart uh, a health regime after being in lockdown for so many months and you can't go to the gym. There's some, some berries you can put in there. Some berries you don't want to put in there because they're going to make you sick. And he's saying you don't get trees which produce Berries that are good for antioxidant, you know, your, your February detox smoothie, um, and ones that are going to put you in a coma at the same time. They don't come from the same tree. In the same way, fresh water and salt water don't come from the same spring. So the fact of the impossibility of this image should be a clue to us that, that James is not moralizing us. He's not saying to us, look, You've got, to, you've got to decide to get fresh water. You've got to control fresh water to come out of your spring and not salty water. He's like, look, what determines what comes out of the spring is the nature of the water within the spring. It's either good to drink or it's not good to drink. You don't get both. Similarly, what the fruit that comes out of a tree is determined by the nature of the tree. You don't get bad fruit on a good tree, nor do you get good fruit on a bad tree. And this is actually all, of course, anchored in the gospel teaching of Jesus, where he said, you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. You make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. Uh, good trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees don't produce good fruit. You can't, you can't go and say to the, the bad tree, look, you're a bad tree, you've got to work really hard and put these 10 principles into action, and you're going to produce good fruit. doesn't work. Nor do you go to a good tree and say, hey, you've got a problem bearing fruit. Let me give you these, these 20 steps to being a good fruit-bearing tree, and then you're going to be doing a little bit better. You're going, to be, uh, you're going to be ticking the box. It doesn't work. It's a nonsense. The image here is that what is, what's at the heart in the nature of a thing determines the fruit or the, uh, the overflow of the thing. And so when, when James comments on the tongue about being something, he uses this image of, well, it's, it's a fire, it's a poison, it's, it's hellish, it's devilish. Uh, these are all, it's all kind of extreme language. What's he actually trying to say? Uh, what's, what are you getting at, James? Because you don't seem to be telling me, on the one hand, your, your tongue is messing up your life, so now you need to learn how to control it better, and then your life will be better. Um, you're actually saying to me that that's impossible, that I can't do that because the tongue cannot be tamed. Something more fundamentally is wrong, and that's, that's a thing that needs to be solved. So there's a diagnosis is given here, and then there's a remedy that's given. And this, and this of course, the remedy is the gospel. The remedy is the person of Christ, which is where we're going to get to in the last, uh, the last few verses. So having started with that in that chapter, James then goes on to contrast two different types of wisdom. And this may seem like a little bit of an abrupt right angle turn into a different subject, which is why I think that some Bibles put a, they put a, a subheading here, because they think that James is changing his theme, he's, that he's focusing on a different theme. But he's really not. Um, the, 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 the second half of the chapter flows directly from the first. 
but you, you, we, we need to understand what's in the mind of James a little bit better to see the connections, because he assumes we'll understand the connections where we, don't, we won't necessarily understand them because we don't have the same background. So, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm going to I'm just going to take you around the house a little bit on here. So the concept of, just keep in mind these concepts, the tongue which breathes fire is full of poison and cannot be controlled by a bit or a bridle. Okay, there's this image. Now, these these kind of uh, attributes, they also go together in another place in the scripture, and this is in the book of Job. But in the book of Job, it's not speaking about uh, about a person's tongue, it's speaking about the dragon Leviathan. And Leviathan is, uh, is a sea monster, basically. It's a mythical sea monster in the scripture. And Leviathan is described as, or, or the image of Leviathan is of the, uh, of the force of, of chaos and destruction and death that disorders and brings disharmony to the entire world. Uh, this is the, the, the primordial dragon of chaos called Leviathan. And in Job, and Job is often considered to be the oldest book of the whole Bible um, that's written. Job has all this suffering, he has all, this, all these problems, all these bad things that happen to him, even though he's basically a faultless and a blameless man. He's not done anything wrong, he doesn't deserve anything bad to happen to him, yet the satanic force, which is later becomes connected with the force of Leviathan in the scripture, the satanic force comes and brings these accusations against him, and then these curses come upon him. And Job's friends come around him, and they, they start to say to him, Job, all these bad things have happened to you because you've done the wrong thing. You've, you must have sowed a bad harvest, and now you're reaping karma. You, you, you know, what goes around comes around. Job, you must have disobeyed God somehow. You must have done something wrong, and that's why you've got sick, and that's why your house has fallen down, and that's why your, your, your children have tragically died. It's, it's consequences, Job. Just, you know, admit it. You've done the wrong thing. Repent, get your life together, and then God will forgive you, and, you know, maybe he'll, he'll restore all of these things. And Job maintains, he says, but I haven't done anything, any of those things. I've not done anything wrong. I haven't done anything to deserve it. In the end, God appears to him at the, at the, uh, in the whirlwind, at the, the end of um, the book of Job. And, and God speaks and says, he, he starts talking to him about Leviathan. He says, Job, do you really have a clue what you're talking about? Do, do you have any idea whatsoever how the world works? You have your own wisdom, your own lens, and your own logic to try and understand the world. But all of this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you that it doesn't add up. Bad things happen to good people, and that's not right. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And good things happen to bad people, and that doesn't make any sense. If the world functioned in this kind of karmic retribution type way, where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, then... Well, that might make logical sense to us. However, it doesn't work that way. We all know it doesn't work that way. And God appears to Job to speak to him and say, look, you don't understand. You, you think by your own intellect and wisdom, you can somehow attain to the divine mind and understand and plumb the, back, the depths of the ocean. And actually, that's just arrogant. You can't do it. That's, that's pride. And in the midst of this, you get... Um, uh, the uh, let me read to you from Job. I actually just want to read specifically here because you'll you'll see the connections um, when God then goes on to start talking about Leviathan. It's a verse. Uh, it's chapter forty-one of Job. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook? Can you tie its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose? 
or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put a leash on it for the young ladies in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? Who is going down? Who is a claim against me that I must pay, says God? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So can you see the, the image there of Leviathan is the same imagery that James uses when he's talking about the tongue. In fact, he even, he even describes the, the, the tongue of Leviathan. So when James says all manner of creatures have been tamed or bridled by man, but the tongue cannot be tamed or bridled by man. Here you have God saying, well, you've, you've tamed and bridled all these birds and all these other fish and what have you, but you cannot tame, you cannot bridle Leviathan. Then it goes down even further. It says uh, in verse 19, flames stream from its mouth, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke pours from its nostrils. As from a boiling pot over burning reeds, its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. So once again, you see James actually quoting Jesus, but uh, James is talking about the, uh, the, the tongue being set on fire by, by devilish fire, and that fire then goes out and starts to, starts to destroy things. And he's saying, you can't, you can't control this. You have no power in your human wisdom and your human logic to be able to tame or bridle this beast, this beast that's called Leviathan. Now in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, Leviathan is a, a, a sea creature, a sea serpent that breathes fire. In the New Testament, the same image appears in John's vision in the book of Revelation, where he sees a, a dragon or a serpent that lives on the land but spews water. And it's two sides of the same coin. These are kind of allegorical images that are speaking into what is the problem in the world that we live in today. We recognize the world is disordered and chaotic. Bad things happen when they shouldn't. Injustices abound, left, right, and center. There's the, there are these destructive forces. And how do we get ourselves on the right side of all of this? And all of human logic, wisdom, and reason, in as much as it is... It is applied in a benevolent way rather than in a tyrannical way. All of that is kind of is our attempts to try and manage this Leviathan force, if you like, the symbolic force of Leviathan, whatever we, however we choose to identify it. With us trying to manage this and trying to make the world a better place in the best that we know how. And what Job and James are both agreeing with here is the, the entire folly of human logic, reason, wisdom, and, and competence to solve the fundamental problem that, that lies at the very core, the very depth of the ocean in, in the biblical imagery, which is in the, in the, very, uh, the very depth of the human heart. What is the solution um, to, to this problem? So it's one thing we know at this point is that the solution is absolutely not our human wisdom and our human logic. Our intellectual constructions cannot solve this problem. So then we get into, uh, oh, by the way, I should say as well, he also talks about the, the tongue being a world of poison. In, in, although James is writing in Greek, he's an Aramaic speaker as, in, as his mother tongue. So he thinks in an Aramaic Hebrew way. And fire and poison are the same concept in, in Hebrew. So you'll see, for example, in Exodus, it says, fiery serpents came and, and bit the people. Fi a fiery serpent is a poisonous serpent. So poison and fire, these are, the, th these are uh, attached to the same value 
in in the, the kind of uh, uh, the, in James's la- mother tongue, his language and mindset. So it's no uh, coincidence that when he speaks Greek, he then in, when he's writing Greek here, he describes the fire the, the tongue as both fire and poison. So if he was using Aramaic to, to say that or Hebrew, then he would just need to use one term because it's fiery poison is is contained in the single term. So you can see here he's he's working out of his is out of his mother tongue, trying to express these ideas in Greek. So, um, so the, the idea of fire and the idea of poison is this destructive force that comes from uh, the, the, the satanic or the demonic, which is associated with Leviathan in the book of Job and is associated with the dragon in the book of Revelation. So these are, these are the themes that, that run underneath this. And it, it, although this may seem kind of a, a, a lot to follow right now, we're going to land it, so don't worry. But also, um, it's it's important to bear in mind that the hearers of James's letter, the recipients who were predominantly uh, Christian Jews and Messianic Jews, they would all they would have, have all understood the, the references because they all grew up with the same background. They, they knew these references. So when they hear James make reference to these things in this kind of very punchy, uh, quick, rapid-fire form, they know what he's referring to because he's, he's quoting things that they all, they all know. It's like quoting a movie that everybody knows or quoting a famous song uh, that, everybody, that everybody knows. It's like if, if I said to you something like, oh, we don't, we don't want to be like, uh, uh, we don't want to do life the way Sinatra did in his famous song then you'll probably be able to get there without too much difficulty. We all know Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way. Um, so if we, we, we want to say, actually, as Christians, we're not doing it our way. We're doing it God's way. I don't need to go into detail to explain that for you to get the cultural reference if we have the same cultural background, which the, the readers do here. So we don't have that background. That's why we need to take a little bit of care to make sure that we're drawing in from that stuff in order to get, get the right context to interpret it. So... Okay, now, uh, Leviathan is described at the end of Job as being the king over all of the proud. So Leviathan rules over the proud, and pride is associated with the, the human natural mind or the natural wisdom. It's the intellect that says, I, by my intellect, can work this out, and I can climb up to God, I can ascend to Godhood, I can become, of my own strength, of my own ability, of my own willpower, I can accomplish something, in order to uh, in, in order to become something, and Job, uh, God says to Job, Leviathan is the king over all the proud. In the same way, you've got here James describing uh, the, uh, the, the 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 tongue in similarly in similar terms uh, around arrogance and pride. You know the the human uh, the human arrogance to um, to have become wise and have accomplished something. So. Then we get into, again, let, let, me, let me land this now in, the, in the, the, the final verses of chapter 3. So James now is saying, okay, if you consider yourself wise and one who understands the ways of God, let me tell you what this should look like for you. So it doesn't come because you have become really good at articulating it. And by the way, I recognize the irony of standing here on a camera on a Sunday morning giving you lots of words to try and articulate it when the thing being articulated is saying, it's not in the words. It's not in how, how clever you are, how eloquent you are, how able you are to actually express something. 
You see, the, the, the role of the preacher or the teacher, very much today as it was back in, in, in the early church time, it can be seen as a position of some privilege or to have some image or status, something that people aspire to. And remember that James started his chapter by saying, not many of you should aspire to do this, because basically, let me tell you what it's like. You just get kicked from every side all at once. And in our, in our modern contemporary world in, of, of uh, Instagram influencers and everybody wanting to be famous and have their kind of YouTube channel or TikTok channel or what have you, it's, it's now permeated throughout the whole of society. It's this kind of culture or cult of celebrity and of status given to those who are good at performing in some manner or another. And James is like, look, there's a need for that sort of platform, but let me tell you something. You're going to get, you're going to get judged and kicked from every side if you go there. So you shouldn't just presume to aspire to be in, in some kind of like celebritized uh, position. And I think that that statement goes for people in, in any, uh, in any public arena, whether it's a, someone, you know, doing a YouTube video or a preacher or a pastor or someone in politics or whatever it might be. I think this is, that this rings true. Excuse me, but he does say, if you consider yourself to be wise, like if you maybe actually might have something to say, then this is really what it should look like. He said, it's, uh, you advertise it with a beautiful, fruitful life guided by wisdom's gentleness. So it's embodied and it's acted upon before it is spoken of. This is the, this is an important point for James. Because he, he, he addresses this issue of, well, you say you have faith, but it doesn't produce any action in your life. So what kind of faith is that really? It's just an intellectualized uh, religious idea. That's all it is. And you then get up and preach and teach about it really confidently as if you've got something to say. But you can't even control your own tongue, which ultimately means you, 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 you know, you're still going around and setting fires without really knowing what you're doing. This is the kind of... The, the image that he's dealing with here. So never brag or boast about what you've done and you'll prove that you're truly wise. This is the, the he's trying to say, look, we, we don't need to put on these false heavy clothes of self-promotion and of, uh, and of pride. Leviathan is the king over the proud. We don't play that game. When it's not a game we're going to win. If you try and fight with Leviathan, you're going to lose. So he's kind of saying, just quit the fight. Stop trying to fight with that thing. You need to recognize you need a savior, not that you save yourself, is that you need somebody who's actually got the answer, someone who's able to, to step in and, uh, and solve this issue for you. As if there's bitter jealousy or competition in your heart, don't deny it or try to compensate by being boast, by boasting and being phony. I think this is obvious. For that has nothing to do with God's heavenly wisdom, but can best be described as the wisdom of this world, both selfish and devilish. Right. So now we've got to this point of he's contrasting these two wisdoms. Man's wisdom looks a certain way. God's wisdom looks, looks a different way. So what does God's wisdom look like? Last few verses again. The wisdom from above is always pure, filled with peace, not with poison. Uh, considerate and teachable, not arrogant and, uh, and self-promoting. It's filled with love and never displays prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. It's fully, it's fully integrated. Then you're not saying one thing and doing another. This is the image of, of it not being hypocritical. It, that, that wisdom is fully integrated throughout your whole life and authentic. Doesn't display, uh, doesn't display prejudice or show favoritism towards people because of perceived external status. And it always bears the beautiful harvest of righteousness. 
Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace. So practically speaking, James is saying this wisdom is an embodied wisdom. It's a wisdom that we, we demonstrate and we live in and we act on before it is a wisdom that we're able to speak of. But it doesn't just stop there. And here's my, here's my kind of final conclusion on this, if my phone will allow me to, uh, to get there. Because the concept of wisdom itself goes back to the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, I think in chapter 19 as well. Uh, wisdom is called in, in the Greek there, Sophia, Lady Wisdom. The, the, this is the, uh, the, the, the manifestation of the mind of God, and she is, uh, is actually, we could contrast Sophia, Lady Wisdom, with Leviathan as the, the uh, embodiment of human logic and chaos and, you know, attempts to sort of solve the world. Lady Wisdom is, is, is the, uh, the, the beautiful, peace-loving, humble manifestation of uh, the wisdom of God. In fact, Lady Wisdom is Christ. And remember that Christ is, uh, he, he is he's a human being, fully human, and he's fully God. He is a, a human male. Uh, and when he walked on the earth, he was walking as a human male and a Jew, very definitely. Um, but also, we see that being fully human and being fully God, um, Christ, uh, he also transcends uh, our human categories, which is why Paul can say, in Christ there is neither male nor female, no slave nor free, nor a Jew nor Gentile, but Christ is all. Interesting, Paul says Christ is all of these and is in all of these. We don't see uh, any more or less of the image of God present whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or male or female or slave or free. Christ is actually all of these and is in all of them. So in fact, you see uh, Lady Wisdom is um, connected to the logos of John 1, the, the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That word is directly related in John's mind to uh, Lady Wisdom, Sophia, in, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs. We could, des- we could describe it as Christ's feminine side, but maybe I'm going to get some hate mail for even saying something like that, I don't know. But, um, but the point is, um, this is the, 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 there's, there's the personification of wisdom, actually is embodied, and wisdom is embodied in a person, and that's Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus is not a moralizing teacher who comes to tell us how to clean up our act and correct, our, correct ourselves. He is the very embodiment of the wisdom of God, and by coming and giving his life for us, he gives us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. That that becomes our sustenance. That becomes our life. And he is the one who is who's created us, and he is the one who sustains us. So at the very core of our being, we are anchored in, uh, we are fused into the one who is our rock, the one who is our foundation, the one who is the true vine, who supplies life coming up into in, in, into us through the through, into us the branches, and by him we can do all things, and by him and through him we produce good fruit. You see, all of our moralizing efforts to try and make ourselves produce good fruit always ultimately come to failure. But Christ, when we recognize the wisdom that comes from heaven, is not a principle. The wisdom is a person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Then we we can now be free to see, actually, at the very core of our being, we sit in union with him. It's his life that flows up through us. What's left to do? Believe it. If we just believe it, then we can embody it. 
then we can begin to act in line with what's there. Not because we've become sophisticated or educated or religiously proficient, but because we are simply, humbly participating in the life of God that is the triune life that Christ has come to bring us. Let me finish with these words of the Apostle Paul from uh, when Corinthians, which Corinthians is it? Uh, 1 and um, uh, chapter 18. Just listen to this, so from verse 6. However, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed these things to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man or the natural mind does not receive these things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And just before this, in the, the he... he, he makes this statement. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And I actually, I'm just going to pause for a moment. I'm going to read this. I want to read this out over you. I've, uh, I've blitzed through a lot. Um, maybe you struggled to keep up. Don't listen with your ears. Listen with your heart. Listen with your spirit. Let Holy Spirit speak to you and uh, and draw for you what is the, what is your need, what is what it is that you need to receive from Holy Spirit today. Don't worry if you didn't follow everything. Uh, just if there's something that caught you and is speaking to you, and then just sit with that. Don't worry about the other bits because, again, I, I mentioned about the irony of saying a lot of complicated things to really get to what's a very simple reality. So I, I get that. Um, but here, so I, I just want to declare this out as a prayer over you, this verse. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And Father, I pray now for everyone who's who's watching the live stream or who's listening to, to the recording of the, of the service today. Jesus, I thank you that you have become for us wisdom. Wisdom is not a principle that we reach out and attain. You are our wisdom. Thank you, Jesus. You are our righteousness. That righteousness is not something we become or we attain to. Righteousness is something that you are, and you are our righteousness. And thank you, Jesus, that you are our sanctification. That sanctification is not a process of us learning to be better people. Sanctification is a person. You are our sanctification. And when Paul says you have become 
our sanctification in Jesus. I thank you that he is giving us that word that liberates us from the self-effort to try and become and attain. And so right now I pray, and maybe if you, you, you're watching, you want to do something physical to embody this. Maybe you just want to put your hand on your heart. Jesus, I thank you that you are living in the heart of every single person who's got their hand on there right now, and even those, those who don't, who are kind of responding in a different way. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in there. And I pray right now that everyone would be able to hear that, that clear, that whisper of your voice saying within them, I'm here, I'm within you, I'm supplying you with the life that you need. You can just lean back into me, allow my life to flow up through you. You don't have to try and change and work hard to become something because you already are, because I am already in you. And you have my permission to believe it. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for that, for those rivers of living water to come up. And Father, where there's been any, where there's been any hellfire, uh, pinging around, setting fire to things and creating damage or burning relationships, especially in this uh, in this very frayed and, and stressful time that we've been living in, you know, this, this, this last year. Uh, I, I pray for the, that cooling water of your Holy Spirit to come and just quench those flames and bring healing to any relationships and anything that's happened that, that, that's caused damage. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Great to be with you here again. And Chris, I will tag out. Cheers. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Paul. So I remember what he said, um, I think in his last talk, he said, if it's, when you hear the good news of Jesus, it's good news and it's liberating. And, and I, and I hope and expect you experience that as well, that freedom that, that comes as he opens the scriptures to us. Great. So we're going to finish, finish there and, um, uh, but do join us for our AGM. Everyone's really welcome. So that's at 12 o'clock on Zoom. Just put the, the details there um, into the chat, into the comments of um, Facebook and YouTube. So uh, love to see you with us at 12 o'clock if you'd like to. Whether you're a member of Hope formally or, or not, yeah, everyone's, everyone's welcome. But this is a time when, we, when we'll go over um, the past year, looking at our finances particularly, and cheering on some, some business uh, stuff, some, some exciting you know, kingdom things that we're, we're pushing into as a church. Um, so that'll be at 12 o'clock on Zoom. All right.